All right, 48 hours from now, there is Good Friday service here in the sanctuary, Friday evening at 7 p.m. There will be a time of of worship, a time of communion, and uh, the Word of God as always. So come out Friday evening for Good Friday service, good precursor for Resurrection Sunday. Child care will be provided. And, And also... Um, a week from this Saturday, so April 14th, uh, will be the women's breakfast here at the church. It's Saturday morning. Um, the time is from 9.30 to 11 a.m., and it will be in the solid ground. And there is a sign-up sheet on the back table. And, and spread the word, because uh, you know, there isn't a whole lot of times to announce that between now and then. So ladies, uh, that's Saturday the 14th at 9.30, and spread the word. And uh, you can open in your Bibles tonight to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. As you're turning, how many of you here tonight have jobs? You work for someone? Oh, good. You know, last week we did parents and children, and I left and I'm thinking, how many of them are parents and, you know, children? You know, I thought, I hope, uh, I hope I'm not preaching to the choir, so... How many of you experienced spiritual warfare? Less. Okay. <laughs> Ephesians, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. The ushers will bring one to you. Chapter 6, and we'll be picking up in verse 5. The book of Ephesians breaks into three general sections. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, the Apostle Paul highlights for us the wealth of the believer in Jesus Christ. Everything that we have in Christ, our wealth. Chapters 4, 5, and the beginning of 6 is the walk of the believer. The responsive lifestyle that comes from our receiving the wealth that we have in Jesus Christ. And so Paul has gone through and described for us what a life in Christ looks like, the life of the believer. And then the third section that we'll break into in the second half of our Bible study tonight is the warfare of the believer, the war that we are in. Well, in the last few weeks, we have been talking about relationships. We started with husbands and wives, Last week we talked about children and parents, and the Apostle Paul closes this segment on the walk of the believer, talking to servants and masters, or if you would in modern language, employees and bosses. And so he says right there in verse 5, if you're looking at your Bible, he says, servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling, in singleness of heart, as unto Christ. He begins right away by addressing his audience. He's talking to servants. Now, in the Greek language, the word that Paul uses is the word that we would use for slaves. And slavery was common. It was part of, you know, culture in Rome that that happened there. And Paul, essentially, to talk about this topic, reaches to the furthest extreme of what somebody would be experiencing working for somebody else. 
in context, Paul is talking to anybody who holds any form of employment, whether it was a slave that was looked at as property, or whether it was someone who simply was an employee working under somebody for wages, or uh, even someone who is a subcontractor or some kind of an indentured servant. He's talking contextually to anyone who works for somebody else. Now, the reason why he uses the word servants or slaves in his address towards this group of people is that by reaching to the furthest extreme of what employment can be, he automatically includes everybody else that works for someone else. By calling it slave. It's all inclusive by talking to slaves. Now, slavery was the common custom of the day when Paul was preaching. And if you were a slave in the Roman Empire, you were basically esteemed as a piece of property. You had no rights, you had no identity, you had no one to advocate for you. You were essentially a tool, and that's about as much as you were worth. If you were a slave, you could be beaten without question. You could be mistreated, you could be killed, and there would be no charges brought up, because if you were a slave in the context of Rome, then you were less than nothing. There were documented instances in those days of slaves being killed just because of simple things like burning the food as they would be preparing it in the house. Sometimes slaves would be killed just for pleasure if there was some type of a a, a fight or some kind of a thing. um, Just for fun, a slave could be killed. You had nothing. And, And the reason why I point that out to you tonight is not because... How many slaves here tonight? Any slaves here? No, nobody. Some people feel like it, you know. But the reason why I point that out is not because you're a slave, but rather because of the command that Paul gives to a group of people that were esteemed as nothing but property. Listen to what Paul says to this group. He says, servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh. The command that Paul gives to a slave is that they are to be in subjection or submission, or to be obedient unto them that are their masters. Now here's the point. If that's the rule concerning someone that treats you like you're less than human, then it absolutely is the rule in the context of the American employee who has more rights and more entitlements than anyone in Rome had in Paul's day. So if a slave who is property is called to obey with respect and fear, then certainly the American worker today, in whatever context he is or she is working, is commanded to do the same thing in the Lord, that we are to be obedient to our masters. And it simply means to be obedient is to do what you are asked, to do what they're asking you to do, to be in subjection and in submission to your bosses or to your supervisors or to your employers. Now, he qualifies what obedience looks like in the employee-employer relationship. He says, be obedient unto your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. Now, the word fear, it's used as fear in the King James, is the same word that we would use for reverence or respect. 
Same word that it uses when it talks about the fear of God. Yes, there is something awesome about the Lord. And I believe that if His glory were to appear, we would be afraid and we would tremble. But the context of fear in this language is not that we're to be afraid of them, but that there's to be a reverence, a reverential attitude in the way that we address them, the way that we are around them, that we're to have respect for those that employ us or for those that are over us in our jobs. Now, the respect that we are called to have towards those that are our supervisors is not necessarily for their person. Because there are some people that are over us, that perhaps are our bosses or our employers, that they're not really respectable people. We would say, well, I would respect them if they had anything decent that was worthy of respect. But see, Paul's not asking us to be respectful of them because of their person, but rather we're to be respectful of them because of their position. In the name of Jesus, we are to revere or respect or honor our employers or our supervisors because they hold that position of, you know, superiority over us in the context or the framework of our employment. Now, respect is something that takes place in the mind. It's a decision that we make, and it's an esteem that we hold, but respect can be largely invisible. We can respect someone, and they never even know that we respect them. Because, well, we say, oh, yeah, well, I do, I respect them. But there's no outward expression of that respect. And Paul knew that we would have the tendency to excuse ourselves from demonstrating respect by just saying that we respect. So he goes on, Paul, and he says, not only is it to be with respect, but also, he says, with trembling. The word trembling in the Greek language means quaking with fear. It means exactly what it says. When you think of someone who's trembling, that's what the word trembling means. And and the type of respect and honor that we're to give to our supervisors or our employers is that of, of visible evidence. That there's to be a visible understanding, an inexcusable perception that our respect is sincere and real. And that's the point. It isn't that we're to, you know, to to grovel. Like I I was picturing as I was going through this Scrooge. You know, and who is that guy that worked for Scrooge? I I forgot his name. Bob Cratchit or whatever. And, 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 you know, he was always like, oh, you know. know, And and that's not quite the idea that that we're, oh, I'm sorry, I dropped your dime, sir. Don't kill me. You know, that's not the idea. But the idea is, is that our respect is so real that there's evidence that our employers understand and know that we have willfully taken upon ourselves the position of a subordinate, someone who is under their authority and willing to be directed or commanded or, you know, instructed and and to do that without giving grief. It's interesting the tendency that we have, especially in, in our culture as Americans, is that we can never let anybody own us. You, you know that term that people use, well, he owned him or something because they you know, got the upper hand or something. And what Paul is essentially saying to you and I tonight is he's saying, let your 
bosses, let your employers, let them own you. Let them understand and know that they have the authority with ease to give you direction and you're not going to argue with them. He says, don't question everything that they say. Don't contradict all of the instruction or the strategy that they're employing in seeking to accomplish a task. And don't be given to criticizing of what they do. I remember as a young carpenter apprentice, I had a zeal and a desire to show myself to be, you know, sharp of mind and quick of hand and strong of body. And so I would always go the extra mile to, you know, show them that I was a thinker, that I was one who had understanding and that I was ambitious, a go-getter. And so I would constantly ask questions. Why are you doing it that way? Why would you measure from there to there? Why would you? And and here I am thinking that, you know, they're going to be impressed. They're going to be impressed with my perception and my wisdom as a young apprentice and my ability to see how things are going to all flow together. And and I remember at one point I was working with this uh, uh, Italian, um, I mean, veteran, really. He, He had been in the game for a long time. And I was doing something for him. I can't remember exactly what I was doing, but I was asking questions and offering opinions and giving advice and lending, you know, commentary to everything that he did. And I remember at one point he finally rolled back. He was, I remember he was on knee pads and he rolled back on his heels and he looked up at me in perfect silence with his jaw gaping open for a minute. And he said, I get a paid from the neck up, you get a paid from the neck down. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> it is not uncommon for a boss or for a supervisor or for an employer to become the target for insults, to be the butt of harsh jokes and criticism, and and all that comes along with that. But I will say that it is not easy to be in that position. It isn't easy for someone to be an employer, to be a manager, to be a boss. It's a difficult thing. I remember the first company that I worked for when I moved down into this region, um, I was their first employee, basically. There was three bosses, three men that joined their resources together and started a company, and I was their first employee. And I watched. I worked for them for four years. I worked for them from the day that they began until the day that they didn't make it, basically. Four years it took for that cycle to run. And I hope it wasn't my fault. I don't think it was. They wouldn't have kept me around, you know. But But this is what happened during that four-year period of time. Of the four people that were the permanent employees, if you would, of that company, I was the only one that consistently received a paycheck each week. I was the only one whose taxes, whose income taxes were paid and all of the insurances were covered for. I was the only one that was guaranteed you know, to to be working and to basically sleep at night knowing that I was going to have a job and that things were going to work out for me in the end. And I watched those guys struggle. I watched them try to figure out how they were going to work things out and rob Peter to pay Paul and who was going to not get paid for this week or for this month while they kept going trying to make the business float while they, they made it go. 
And I saw firsthand the stress and the strain that goes into trying to run a business. There is so much to it that you and I, perhaps in the you know, context of our own employment, can't see, that don't understand the stress that goes along with it. And it's not easy to be in that position. And God knows that, and he says, listen, this is the way that you can best represent me and be a witness for me in your workplace. And that is to simply just be obedient, be in subjection, be submissive to the people that you work for with respect and fear. And he says in that, he goes on and he says, with singleness of heart as unto Christ. And that is that we're to work in such a way as that we are doing it as unto him. That we're not serving the boss. We're not doing it for a paycheck or for a wage. We're not doing it out of ambition to seek a higher position within the company or within the industry that we might be working in. But we're doing it because we've been called by God for this season of my life to be doing this with my time and my energy. And so I'm going to do it as though I'm doing it for Christ. And then he qualifies that in verse 6 by saying, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. He tells us there that the work that we do is not to be done with eye service. And I love that because isn't it amazing how crafty we can become in our employment? Is that we can give the appearance to those that are looking with their eyes that we're doing more than what we're actually doing. It's eye service. We're causing them to look at what we're doing and think that we're being really productive, but we really know that we've made all kinds of shortcuts and there's a whole bunch of groundwork that was skipped and must be gone back over in order to really complete the process. Or eye service can be when we give the impression that we're more committed than we really are. And we put our game face on every day and, you know, we, we come, you know, l- l- appearing to have a ready mind. But really our mind is a thousand other places. On our weekend plans. On the meals that we have to prepare. On the grocery list. On, you know, what's going on with us. F- All of that's real. I'm not saying that, you know, that's not important. But what Paul is saying is that do it with as much of your heart as you can give. Not just simply with eye service so that you appear to be what you really are not. And then he also says, or as men pleasers. And what he's saying is that the drive that we're to carry with us behind our hard work is to be the Lord and not the boss. I don't think there's anything more miserable or impossible than seeking to please a man. Or a boss, you know, whether that's a male or female or a group of people or a board or anything else. There's nothing more miserable or impossible than to do that. I remember, you know, my first job, my first job after we got married, uh, you know, I had no experience in construction whatsoever. And I got called to this job, but there was a high school being built and it was in the early stages. And, uh, you know, it, it was my first job. I remember I got on the job and the guy looked at me and he says, can you read a tape measure? And I said, are you serious? And he said, yes. I said, yeah, I can read a tape measure. So he goes, get in the basement. 
So I go in the basement, he's got me digging a hole, you know, and, and I had this ambition for the Lord, you know, and it probably was loaded with selfish things, you know, because uh, I'm still wickedly selfish, you know. But, but I remember there was one day that I was there, and they wanted the entire perimeter of the basement walls of the school insulated with this uh, two-inch by um, two-foot by eight-feet foam boards and everything. And it had to be framed in with these steel studs anchored to the concrete wall and everything. And all, they give me all the materials. They give me the instructions. And then they leave me there. And I said, I am going to blow these people's minds. And I started running. I'm shooting the things in, I'm putting the insulation, I'm going, and I'm like, I'm going to finish this today. I'm drenched with sweat from head to toe. I'm loading this up, the, the, the walls, and, and I got about half done by the end of the day. And the foreman comes down, he tells me, all right, time to go, you know, the whole thing. He comes down, he looks at everything, and, and I didn't say nothing, he didn't say nothing. We walk upstairs, we put away our tools, we're walking off, and, and I just looked at him, and I said, hey, did I work hard enough for you today? And he looked over at me and said, you can always work a little harder. I, oh, and I remember that job, like every day I went there, you know, with rigor, you know, working. And then one day, one day, I had a real bad day. I, I was cutting with a demo saw, which is basically a big, it's like got a chainsaw motor and it's to cut steel, you know, so it's like there's sparks flying everywhere. And I'm cutting with the demo saw and it lit my pants on fire. I had my leg in the stream of sparks, and I'm like, what is that? And all of a sudden, I look down, and, and my, my pant leg is engulfed in flint. So I'm running around like an idiot, and then, and then, you know, I'm walking around all day with, like, one leg missing, you know, all tattered and everything. Then it gets worse. I go into the outhouse, you know, and I, I'm in there, and my zipper literally broke off. And the button. The whole thing just broke. So that, so now I'm like, oh, now what do I do, you know? So, so I'm, I'm, I'm like trying to find like some twine or something to like tie my pants up. And, you know, and I'm trying not to let anybody see me. And, you know, here I'm like trying to make this impression, you know, that I'm really doing it for these guys. Wouldn't you know they laid me off that night, you know? <laughs> Here's the point. Trying to please man, impossible. You'll work into the ground. I think of Corrie Ten Boom. She was the, you know, the, 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 the woman who hid Jews during the Holocaust and then worked with them after and under terrible conditions, terrible uh, situations and the danger and the, you know, the things that she endured and the things that she suffered. And somebody at one point came to her while she was in the midst of her work and they looked at her and looked at what she was doing and they, they, they just stared at her for a minute and then came to her and said, I wouldn't do what you are doing right now for a billion dollars. And she looked right back at them without missing a beat. She said, neither would I. And you know, some of the things that God has us doing for our employment or for our bosses are things that aren't worth the paycheck that we're getting. And the people that it seems we're doing them for aren't worth pleasing. But we're not called to do it for a paycheck, and we're not called to do it to please them. We're called to do it as unto Christ, as though it was him that gave us the job, and at the end of the day, it will be him that renders us the reward. And I find that when you're doing something for Christ, you'll do a lot of things that you would never do for man. And he's a lot easier to please. So we're to do it for the Lord's sake. Now, he goes on and he talks to servant, or masters in verse 9. He says, and you masters, 
do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening. Uh, oh, did I skip something? I did. It's, it's verse 8. He says, Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And, and what he's saying is that there will be two results that will come from this type of work ethic, from this mindset. One of them, one of the results actually isn't in the text. It's historical, and the other one is in the text. Historically, the result of the Apostle Paul's teaching to slaves to be obedient to their masters, this is the very thing that lended itself to the ending of slavery within the Roman Empire. As the gospel was spread, and as slaves were converted to Christ, and they began to live this way, many of them were granted their freedom. Others, though they weren't granted their freedom, they obtained such favor that the conditions that they were working under were better than those that weren't slaves. And the whole system of slavery weakened under this. There's a great story if you read Philemon. It's right before the book of Hebrews in the New Testament about how the gospel affected a servant-master relationship and what the gospel did for slavery in the Roman Empire. Paul couldn't come out and say, slavery is wrong. In the eyes of God. Because he would have immediately been killed. Anybody who heard him and spread that doctrine. I mean Christianity would have been. You know. Whatever. But by Paul saying. Listen. This is the way that you're to be. And how you're to be a witness for Christ. It had an effect upon slavery in Rome. I believe that the same thing is true today. In the context of employment in our society. When you look at your job. As being from the Lord. And you do your job as though you're doing it for the Lord. And you do it with respect and with submission for your boss. And with a single mind to be productive and to be fruitful and to be profitable to the people that are signing your paycheck. You become to those people inexpendable. They wouldn't lose you or get rid of you for anything else that they might gain. Because they know that in you they have something that's a real asset. You become promotable. Suddenly, they look at you and they see potential because they see that you're committed. You're faithful. You're putting in a full day's work for a full day's pay. You're not cutting corners or finding cheap ways to get by. And you become respectable and likable to them. And the, you know, the atmosphere of where you're working becomes so pleasant. The favor that you receive. I think of you know, Jacob, how God just blessed him. And that's the second thing when you look at the text here in verse 8. It says that God will reward you. God will reward you if you take on this mindset. And you see it in scripture consistently. You look at Jacob and how he was faithful to Laban. Even though Laban was a creep, Jacob said to him, you've changed my wages ten times. Every time there's been something good, you've tried to make it harder for me. And I've been nothing but faithful to you. You've never lost anything. And God, through his blessing took the substance of Laban and he transferred it to Jacob completely legally. And it was just a result of of Jacob's work ethic, his hard work. You read of Joseph and the work ethic that he had there in Genesis chapter 39 and, and the way that he served Potiphar. And Potiphar was so confident in the faithfulness of Joseph that he put everything into his hand and didn't even, didn't even consider anything except for the food that he ate because he knew that Joseph was trustworthy. 
And on and on and on as you go through the scriptures and you see people that do their work as unto the Lord and the blessing of God upon their life. And how God is able to take someone like David who was nothing but a shepherd, his family, nothing in Israel, from Bethlehem, and God could make him the king over his inheritance. You read of Jeroboam in the days of Solomon, how he was industrious. And Solomon, he didn't even know Solomon was watching. And Solomon saw this man and said, he's industrious. And he became a man of great prominence in the nation of Israel. And God blesses those that receive the things that Paul is saying here and apply them to their working situations. And then he talks to masters in verse 9. He says, and you masters do the same things Unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. He says, if you're a boss, then you're to do the same things that the servants are called to do for you. What is that? Well, you're to have respect for your employee. And now to them, it's not necessarily for their position, but rather it's for their person. You're to be respectable to them, bosses. You're to have integrity concerning the contract that you made with them. And you're to have an affinity to their well-being. You're to desire good and look out for those that work for you. You know, it is fitting that Paul spoke to servants first. Because if he had spoken to bosses first and told them these things, then the employees would say, well, I'll do for them what I'm called to do when they do for me what they're called to do. But it doesn't work like that. We're called to do what God says and do it as unto the Lord. And he tells the employers to do them. And then he tells them why at the end of the verse. He says, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. And the biblical principle behind authority, and listen up, especially if you're a person that is a supervisor or you're overseeing people or you're an employer or you're a boss or even if you're a parent. The biblical rule of thumb concerning authority is that the strength of your authority is directly linked to the strength of your submission. In other words, everybody bends the knee to someone. If you were a centurion in Rome, it meant that you had a hundred people that bent their knee to you. But you, in turn, bent your knee to Caesar. And the strength of your submission to Caesar was as far as your authority over your hundred could go. And the same thing is true in the framework of a job as a boss or as a supervisor. Your authority and your success in leading those people, is only going to be as strong as your humility and your submission to whoever it is that you bend the knee to. And Paul reminds them, he says, listen, you have a master which is in heaven, so don't become lifted up and think that you're all that because you're the one that signs the paycheck or issues the commands. You have a master also that's in heaven. As we close this section, essentially what Paul is telling us is that the workplace is where many of us have the greatest potential to make a difference for Christ upon the earth. I think of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, no one takes a light and puts it under a bed, or takes a lamp and hides it under a bushel. Why did Jesus use those two 
analogies, a bed and a bushel as the place where the lamp is hidden. Because I believe it's the place, first of all, where our lamp can be seen the brightest. The bed speaks of our homes. The bushel speaks of our commerce, our jobs. But it's also the place where we are the most prone to hide the light, isn't it? In our homes and in our jobs, we put it under the bushel, we hide it. But what he's saying to us, and what is fact true, is that most of us, the biggest difference that we can make for Christ in the world, we can make on our jobs. And Paul is saying that this is the stage, this attitude, this work ethic, this mindset, this behavior is the stage whereupon your message will either be received or rejected. If you have a terrible work ethic and a terrible attitude and you're constantly contradicting and criticizing your employer, then your word about Christ that you would speak will bear nothing. But if you give them what Paul is explaining to us here, then when people ask, or when they see the light coming out of your life, and they do ask, and when you speak, your words will have weight behind them. This is a place where we can bear fruit. And our work ethic and our attitude will either confirm the truth of Christ or it will contradict that which we speak. Well, Paul moves on, and so do we. And we cross into the final section of the book of Ephesians as we come to verse 10. The warfare of the believer. The epistle began in the mountains of promise. As Paul laid out for us all of the wealth and all of the blessings that we have as those that are in Christ Jesus. The key word in chapters 1, 2, and 3 is seated. That we are seated in heavenly places with Christ. Our position is secure and we rest in our place within Christ. The mountains of promise. And from there Paul took us and he showed us the steps of our journey. As six times in chapters 3 or 4, 5 and up to this point in chapter 6, he uses the word walk. And he showed us the footsteps of a fruitful journey as we walk with the Lord. We went from where we were seated to where we are to walk. And now, as he concludes in these final verses of Ephesians, he takes us into the valley of the battle. And the recurring word that keeps coming up in these verses about our warfare, the word that comes up the most is the word stand. That we're to stand against the enemy. The great Christian pastor, Watchman Nee, said, summed up the book of Ephesians with three words. He said, sit, that is our rest, our position in Christ. Walk in the right ways of the Lord and stand against the attack of the enemy. So what does Paul, as we begin talking about this warfare, this battle that we're engaged in as Christians, what does he have to say about the warfare of the believer? Notice there in verse 10, he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. I love the fact that he begins this section of the battle by saying that it's not in our strength that we will stand or we're to fight, but that we're to be strong in the Lord 
and in the power of His might. That is, the source of our strength and the source of our victory as we fight in this world, in this war, the source is the Lord. It doesn't come from ourselves. It comes from Him. You've heard it said before that as Christians, we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. And the source for our victory, for our strength, for us to stand, it doesn't come from us. It comes from Him. We're not going to defeat the devil or be able to defeat or stand against his wiles because of our wit or our wisdom or our cunning or our intelligence. However, we do have a part to play. We do have something to do in this. And it's what he tells us there at the beginning of verse 11. He says, put on the whole armor of God. Though we can't defeat by our own strength, yet we still have the responsibility to defend ourselves against his attacks. And Jesus has provided for us the means of doing that. He's given us armor to defend ourselves in this battle that we are in. Now, listen. If a kingdom were going to go to battle against another kingdom, and they were going to engage in warfare between themselves, the first thing that an enlisting officer would do as he's preparing his troops to fight is that he would brief them to help them understand the enemy. To help them understand who the enemy is, what the motivation of the enemy is, what tactics does the enemy use, and what is the terrain of the battlefield. And essentially what Paul is doing in these introductory verses, and we're not going to move past verse 12 as we uh, you know, just begin this section, but what Paul is doing is he is briefing us for the battle that we face as Christians. And he begins by telling us who our enemy is. And that's important. If you were going to go to war, you would want to know who your enemy is. And so he tells us there, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Our enemy, saints, is the devil. That's who we are waging war against or defending ourselves against in this Christian warfare. Well, who is the devil? See, Paul doesn't tell us much about him. He assumes that they already know a lot of this. But who is the devil? Who are we fighting against? The first time we see Satan, the devil, is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, as he's there in serpent form, tempting Eve to partake of the fruit that God had clearly forbidden that they were to partake of it. And that's the first mention. It's the first time we see him. But is that his origin? Where did he come from? How did he get there? Who is this tempter, this subtle serpent that's there alluring Eve to partake of that which God has forbidden? Where did he come from? Who is he? Well, the passages that I would suggest to you that you become familiar with if you want to understand the enemy, and you can write these down and look them up later, are Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14. They lend incredible insight to us concerning our enemy, where he came from, who he was. And we're not going to turn there, but let me sum up for you. Ezekiel tells us that Satan was created as the covering cherub. 
Now, I said a lot. I said one sentence, but I said a lot. I said, first of all, he's created. Many people don't know that about Satan. They just think that he is the opposing evil to the good that God is. But no, no, Satan was created by God. And we're told that he was created as the covering cherub. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago when we talked about God's order in the angelic realm, we talked about the rank and file of the cherubim, one of the orders within the angels, the host of God's servants, God's ministers. And Satan was apparently, evidently, the covering cherub. He was the one that was the captain of them. He was over the entire realm of those that were called cherubs in God's uh, host, if you would. And Ezekiel tells us that this Lucifer that became Satan, this covering cherub, four attributes, it tells us that he excelled in wisdom. That his wisdom was wondrous. It was beyond comprehension. He was very wise. It tells us that he was beautiful. That every precious stone was his covering. Somehow created or knit into the very fabric of what he was were musical instruments that brought glorious sound to the throne room of God. He was incredibly beautiful. He was talented, the Bible says. And the Bible also tells us that he had incredible privilege, that he walked up and down upon the fiery stones of the throne room of God. He had access to to, to God himself, something that some angels don't have, you know, that don't stand in his presence. So he had wisdom, he had beauty, he had talent, and he had privilege. Now, here's where something happened, and we don't know how this happened. How does God's utopia become defiled by iniquity. We don't know. We don't know how. But somehow, in this grand creation, in this grand order of God's heavenly kingdom, Satan began to believe that he was so gifted, that he was so talented, so wise, and so privileged, that he must, must have been created for more than to be just an angel. I know I'm the covering cherub and I've got a great position, but they don't recognize my talent. They don't recognize my beauty. They don't recognize the potential of everything that's been given to me. And I'm being sequestered into this position wherein my giftings and my talent and my beauty speaks to so much greater, so much more. By the way, men especially, beware when you start to have that type of mindset. Oh, I'm so talented. Why, why am I pushed into this box? You know, why am I kept in this position? Beware. He began to think, I can do better than this. And he became bitter because it wasn't God's will that he be elevated beyond what he was. And a thought process began. And this is where you get from Isaiah chapter 14 when you go and you look that up later. Five times. It tells us that Satan just thought within his mind, I will ascend above the throne of God. I will sit seated above the congregation. I will be the one that is worshipped, that is glorified, that is exalted. I will. See, God's kingdom doesn't work on I will. God's kingdom works on thy will be done. And because he is the only one that is perfect and pure, It is only his will that can rule and reign effectively and righteously. 
But thy will became I will to Lucifer. And that thought process became a plan. And the Bible says that he deceived one-third of the angels that were there in heaven. And that thought process that became a plan turned into a rebellion. An attempted overthrow. And the Bible tells us, in fact, it's Jesus that tells us that in one instant... As fast as a bolt of lightning, Satan was cast out of heaven and he was cast into the earth. Jesus said to his apostles, he said, I beheld Satan cast out of heaven like lightning. That's how much power he has compared to God, by the way. In one instant, he's thrown down. Satan is not in hell. Did you know that? People picture him that he's wearing this you know, costume, he's got the red suit on with the pointy tail and a pitchfork and, you know, and he's got makeup on and fangs and all that and he's down in hell and there's like, no, 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 no. The Bible says that Satan roams to and fro throughout the earth. He's in the earth. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the one that's responsible for the corruption and the wickedness that we see going on in the world around us even today. And the Bible says that he's still beautiful. I think it's 2 Corinthians chapter, I'm guessing, 11 verse 8 or somewhere around there. You could look it up. But it says that he masquerades as an angel of light. That if you were to see Satan, you would not be like, oh, dragon, fire. You would say, wow, it's a beautiful angel. It's an apparition. It's a vision. It's from God. You would be so convinced it's so real. In Isaiah 14 there, it says that when we see him, We're going to be amazed. We're going to say, this, this is the one? It's him? Because it's not going to be what you're thinking. He's a deceiver. See? He's in the earth. Well, what's his personality? His origin, we understand. What about his personality? Well, three words mark the personality, the, the ambition, or I'm sorry, the, uh, the, uh, the drive, what moves him, what motivates him. Number one is ambition. He has a desire to go forward. Advancement and a desire to rule. Ambition, advancement, and a desire to rule. He is the king of the Democrat. I mean, no, no, this isn't politics. But that's his personality. And this is his agenda. Remember, you're in the briefing room right now. You're being briefed for the battle. You understand the origin of your enemy. You understand the personality of him. Well, what is his agenda? What does he want? Why is he fighting? His agenda, first and foremost, is to thwart the purposes of God. He hates God. And so he is driven above all other things to thwart and set and upseat the purposes of God. His second agenda, which is similar, it's in line with that, is to destroy man. He hates man. You know why he hates man? Because man was made in the image of God, and Satan hates God above all other things. The other reason Satan hates man is because man was created for communion with God. Do you know what communion is? Communion is the unifying of two things. It says that those that overcome, he will grant to sit with him in his throne, two becoming one. In Christ Jesus, the position that we hold is that we are one with Christ. The two become one. 
That's exactly what Satan wanted that he could never achieve. And so he burns with jealousy against redeemed man. And therefore he hates man because we have attained by the blood of Christ what he could never attain through his wisdom or his beauty or his talent or his ambition or his rebellion. So he hates man. And the third reason that Satan hates man is because God loves man. And Satan hates God. Are you catching a common theme here? And so Satan's agenda is to destroy men. Well, how does Satan destroy men? He does it two ways. Number one, he does it by keeping them from coming to God. If he can keep someone from receiving Christ, if he can blind their eyes and deceive them and lie to them to the point where they will not come to the light and receive the salvation of Christ, then he has successfully destroyed a human soul, banished it with himself to hell forever. If he can't stop someone from coming to Christ, I don't know if you know this, but he doesn't quit. He still tries to destroy. And what he does then is that he'll keep them or try to keep them from walking with the Lord. He'll try to keep them through condemnation, through guilt, through depression, through sin, through temptation. He'll do anything he can to keep someone from walking with the Lord, experiencing intimacy and fellowship with the Lord, and especially growth in the Lord. And so his agenda is always to destroy or to distract man and keep him from God. Now, why is this important for us to understand? Why do we take the time to talk about the enemy and who he is? Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever had an enemy? Have you ever had someone that's like just your sworn enemy? You, you, you know, you, you just, they, they make your teeth grit, you know, this, this thing. And I hope as Christians you don't have that anymore because, you know, you've been set free from bitterness and you've forgiven and all of that. But I think we all understand. Imagine with me for a minute you had two businessmen and they were in competition with each other. Maybe they had a history where at one time they were partners, but there was greed and there was, you know, dishonesty and they separated paths and they become sworn enemies. But in their respective fields, they go on to compete in, you know, businesses that compete with one another. And they're enemies, these two men. Well, they know each other. And so the one, when he thinks about the other one, he says he is absolutely driven by greed and by power and, and by lies. That's what drives this man. And you understand because, well, you know, look in the mirror. No, no. <laughs> you understand because you know him. And because you know him, therefore, when he does things, you recognize them for what they are. They're driven by and motivated by who he is. And so you recognize and you can defend yourself against them. Well, if we understand our enemy, if we understand who he is and what drives him, what motivates him, then when we see things going on around us, it alerts us to who is behind it and what he's trying to do, and we're able to defend ourselves properly. And so it's important for us as Christians to understand who our enemy is is now once we know who our enemy is the second thing that we're told in this briefing room for the battle the enlisting officer the apostle paul in this case he tells to us what his tactics are what are the tactics that we can expect that our enemy is going to use against us notice again in verse 11 he says put on the whole armor of god that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil 
Now, the word wiles there in the Greek language is the word methodias. Can you guess what the English word is for methodias? Method, right? What are the methods or the wiles of the devil that he seeks to use against us? Now, Paul doesn't say what they are. He assumes that they already know. Keep in mind, Paul spent three years in Ephesus. They're fully versed and well aware of who their enemy is and what his tactics are. Well, what are his tactics? I've got good news and bad news. The good news is Satan has a very small playbook. Three plays in Satan's playbook. There are three things that are the wiles of the devil or the methods of the devil. That's the good news. Because I wouldn't be able to handle more than that. I, my memory shot after three, you know. The bad news is he's real good at using those three lures, if you would. Those three plays. What are they? First John chapter 2, verse 15. It says this. Listen carefully, church. I'm telling you, this is how Satan wants to wipe you out. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust, listen, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are not of the Father, but are of the world. And the world is passing away. There are three plays in Satan's playbook. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And everything that he will do to try to destroy or distract a man or a woman and keep them from the Lord will fall under one of those three categories. What does it say in Genesis chapter 3? It says that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, the lust of the flesh, and pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, and desirous to make one wise, the pride of life, she took of the fruit, and she did eat. What did Satan say to Jesus in the desert as he tried to tempt him there? He said, command this stone that it be made bread, the lust of the flesh. And then he took him to an exceeding high mountain and he showed him all the glory or the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them in a moment of time, the lust of the eyes. And then he took him to the pinnacle of the temple and he said, throw yourself down. It is written that the angels will pick you up and everybody will applaud you. The pride of life. When Satan comes to you and I, what does he use? Wow, she is beautiful. Or he is gorgeous. The lust of the eyes. Wow, that house. In that neighborhood. In that setting. With those utilities and features. What will they say of me, my family, when they see me living like this? The pride of life. Oh, I could just take a little drink or I'll just take, take the pill one more time even though, you know, it's feeling better. You know, it's just, it's take the edge off. You know, I'll just take, take it for a little bit longer. It's the lust of the flesh. He got a very small playbook. You say, well, wait, if it's such a small playbook, then why is it so effective? How could he be so good at it? Here's why. 
Because when man fell in the Garden of Eden, Satan was successful in interjecting into the first man a sinful nature. And that sinful nature passed upon every descendant of Adam, and that includes you and I. And the sinful nature that we have, that we were born with, is extremely susceptible to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. If we don't understand what those tactics are, and if we're not aware of them when they come, then our natural tendency is to give in to them and then to excuse them because they correlate with our lusts and desires. Well, God made me this way. Of course I'm going to do that. The third thing in this briefing, he talks about his army, and we're almost out of time, but we'll buzz through this quickly. In verse 12, it says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Satan doesn't act alone in his work within the world. I told you already that one-third of the angels fell with him. The verse is Revelation chapter 12, verse 4. It says that the dragon, with his tail, took one-third of the stars with him. It's very clear when you compare Scripture with Scripture what it's talking about there. And Satan has a very well organized, very efficient, and very wise army of minions and demons that work along with him to accomplish his work. Satan's army is called the SWAP team, S-W-H-P, and it's right there in verse 12. If you have verse 12, you could just leave it up there for a couple minutes. But at the end of the verse, it tells us the name of Satan's army. It's spiritual wickedness in high places. That's the name of Satan's army. The captain of the army is Satan himself. He's the one that calls the shots. He launched the rebellion. He's the one that's made the plan. And he's the one that carries it out. Just under Satan in rank within his army are what Ephesians 6.12 here calls the rulers of the darkness of this world. And Satan is also among them. Those are the highest ranking in the army of the enemy. The rulers of the darkness of this world. Just under them are the principalities it mentions there again in verse 12. It says, against principalities and powers. Underneath the rulers are the principalities. And the principalities in Satan's realm are demons that are over regions of the world directing and governing and twisting the affairs and the things that we can't see with our eyes. In Daniel chapter 10, there's a great vignette there where uh, Gabriel is sent to give a message to Daniel. And he says, I came three weeks ago and I was held up because of the prince of Persia. The prince of Persia was not a man. It was a principality, as Paul is explaining here. A demonic, dark force that was over-assigned to the region of Persia that was keeping Gabriel from accomplishing his task. And Gabriel says, Michael came, Michael the archangel came and helped me, and therefore now I'm come to give you the message. But understand, I was sent three weeks ago. By the way, don't stop praying, saints. Because your answer might have come three weeks ago. But there's a battle going on in an unseen... I see people starting to get fidgety. That's either because it's late or because you're like, all right, this is getting real sci-fi here, you know. But this is real. This is more real than the chair that you're sitting in right now. Underneath the principalities 
It says powers. And the powers are the individual demons. Most of us that say the devil's hitting me today. The devil ain't touching you. If the devil were touching you, it would be a lot worse. It's most likely a power. It's a minion. It's a demon. Something that's been sent for a specific purpose to seek to destroy and to deceive. So this is Satan's army. It's efficient, it's organized, and it's invisible. And that's number four in this briefing, the nature of the battle. Look at the very beginning of verse 12 there. It says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. The nature of the battle that we are facing, Christians, is an invisible one. It's not physical. It's spiritual and it's invisible. Your enemy is not your spouse. It's not your unruly children. It's not your over-demanding boss. It's not Wall Street or the economy or the politicians. It's not the Republicans or the Democrats. It's not socialism or capitalism. That's not your enemy. It's bigger than that. It's invisible. It's something that's being controlled in a realm that you can't see and that other than from the Bible, you cannot understand. It's an invisible army of darkness. And we don't have time to expand upon that, but I'll leave you with this question. How can we, Christians, in this age, in this time, you and I, how can we be protected against an invisible, powerful, highly organized, and experienced army? Come back next week. And try not to get wiped out in the meantime. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you that you are faithful to equip us with everything that we need. So that we can stand against the wiles of the devil. To stand complete in Christ Jesus. To overcome the temptations the allurements, the traps, all that he set before us. You are faithful, Lord. And so we pray tonight, Lord, where there's those here that have fallen into the net of condemnation or of guilt or of some besetting sin, we ask, Lord Jesus, that your light and your truth and your power would come into this house and that you would restore freedom and victory and power. We pray for those here tonight that maybe don't know you yet. That even right now they are the pawn of Satan who is simply seeking to use them and waiting for his opportunity to destroy them. That tonight perhaps maybe in something they've heard they would be awakened to the truth of what's really going on in the world right now. And I pray for that person or those people that might be here, Lord, that tonight they would call upon you that they would understand that in that same instant, that same flash of lightning that made the difference between Satan in heaven and Satan on earth, they can call upon you. And in one instant, they can be translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And so I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here tonight that doesn't yet know you, that you would even this, this very moment, that you would pull on their heart and that they would receive you as their Lord, and that they would be set free from Satan's power.
pray, Lord, that you would go with us, that you would prepare us. Strengthen us, bless us, Lord, as we prepare for this weekend. And we just give you thanks for all that you've done tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.